Welcome to Academic Conversation with Merton and Morgan. I'm Alicia. And I'm Mary. And we're sharing content that supports and empowers parents and teachers. So Mary, tonight I was reading the issue of um, ILA for January, February. And on January 22nd, the ILA report came out for what's hot in 2020. And um, you know that that's just the report that's released by ILA that kind of talks about what's hot in um, the world of literacy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to talk about the top five okay. topics that the survey results have said that educators feel are most important right now. Okay. And just to be clear, this is in Literacy Today, right? This is yes. the, the um, bridged version. And there's a longer report that you can download from ILA if you're a member, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And we could talk about that report for hours. Mm-hmm. So I thought we would just focus on the top five. The very first thing they say they have an article and um, and they say that literacy is the foundation of all learning and it is a fundamental human right. And we've talked about that before. And this article just kind of struck me and I really wanted to talk about it and share it. And we have done a lot of podcasts so far and a lot of work. And it just, when I read it, I said, yes, we've been saying this forever. This is right. And to finally see it in print, um, just really, like I said, hit a nerve, struck a chord in me, evoked some strong emotions that makes me just want to share with our colleagues and our listeners. Mm -hmm. I think this is the first time that they've all seemed so interrelated. Um, And There's a quote from the ILA, uh, Kathy Headley at the board of directors at ILA saying everything that's listed is all very related. And I feel like that's really more so on this one than even in the past. Absolutely. So I'm going to tell you just what the top five are. And then Mary and I are just going to talk about them. Okay. So the first one is building early literacy skills through a balanced approach that combines both foundational and language comprehension instruction. So that's the first one that they say that's one of the most critical. And then the second one is determining effective instructional strategies for struggling readers, Mm -hmm. which Mary and I both have experience with that. Number three, increasing equity and opportunity for all learners. Number four, increasing professional learning and development opportunities for practicing educators. And number five, providing access to high quality diverse books and content it seems like equity is the theme running through all of those and it's the the phrase the word that unifies all of it because all of those build equitable classrooms and equitable opportunities for kids to become literate agreed and through equity too i think um being a prepared teacher it takes me back to some of the teacher preparation programs and um i'm going to quote a lot that i picked out from the report and from the article and um one quote that they had 71 percent of the greatest barrier to equity in literacy education is teacher knowledge and teacher effectiveness. Um, And they really talked about having adequate resources for teachers and how that was lacking. They named specifically classroom libraries, smaller class sizes. And I worked in a school that actually had small class sizes at Mm -hmm. one time. And um, the size really didn't matter unless the instruction was intentional and systems and routines were in place. So you can have great instruction with large class sizes, or you can have not such great instruction with small class sizes. Right. So It all hinges on the teacher. It all hinges on the teacher, mm-hmm. yes, and the effectiveness of, of the instruction. Mm-hmm. They also um, said with equity that 92% um, wanted access to free, high-quality preschool education yeah. that lays a strong foundation for literacy development. So right off the bat, they're thinking, okay, students 
need equity and literacy from the very beginning. Yeah, I think that was the highest percentage, wasn't it, of respondents that agreed, right? I think we all agree on that. The question is how to get it done, right? How to get it funded. How to get it funded. And then I think teachers that are actually equipped to Mm -hmm. teach literacy at that level, at that age. And valuing people who work with the youngest kids as much as any other age of kid. Yes. Yeah. It takes me back to those early literacy skills, oral language, knowing what mm-hmm. um, what the youngest students need. Writing comes into that, understanding the developmental stages of writing. So it just goes on and on. But when I saw that, yes, we're talking about equity before they even reach kindergarten. Yeah. And having that access and free to all students, I think, would make a, a huge difference. And we see that it does. So what do you think about teachers being well-prepared in the area of literacy? Well, you and I both worked as adjuncts in- and literacy programs in different higher ed institutions. And, you know, I feel like the people in higher ed have been very honest about the fact that they can't, haven't been able to get teachers the deep knowledge that they need to be a good teacher of literacy. And I think there are a lot of different reasons for that. I think one of the reasons is that sometimes people on the staff in a particular school, higher ed, they don't agree themselves on what the best philosophy or the research they want to focus on. And that can cause students to not have a real unified view of how the best ways that they can teach kids. Also, they've said to me that um, it's really hard to teach a teacher everything they need to know about teaching reading prior to being a teacher. So I think that just speaks to the fact that teachers need very supportive but also very intensive continuing ed, especially in their first few years of learning how to teach reading and writing and speaking and listening. And I I have a good friend who's um, worked in higher ed for a long time and she used to say that if they were doing a better job in higher ed with pre-service teachers learning how to teach reading and writing that they wouldn't have to backward engineer so many things in the classrooms and with district initiatives and things that are you know meant to fill that in um, which we do see a lot and that that doesn't always have the best benefit when it's an initiative because those things can change with leadership and teachers can end up feeling sort of whiplash almost of initiatives. So I think there's so many different issues going on, but I think it's definitely something that keeps teachers from being able to really be confident and ready to learn and know what to do as soon as they get started with their kids. And, you know, you and I have talked about it. It's taken us so many years to get the knowledge that we feel like we have now, which there are still days when I sit and look at kids and think, why don't I know what to do with you, you know? Um, so there's no way a teacher's going to come out of the gate and be ready to do all that, but they should be confident enough to get started and be able to build on what they're doing and ask questions that will help them help their kids. Okay. That's a long answer, but... It kind of reminds me of when when everybody adopted the same, you know, the Common Core mm-hmm. s- state standards, and and every every state was going to be on the same page, and so that way, if students moved, they were still going to get the same standards, and everything was going to be equitable. And they had talked in the the article that um, different teaching programs 
give different certifications, uh-huh. different degrees. Like you may be able to get a reading or a literacy degree in undergrad in one state and in another state it's in a master's program. Mm-hmm. So you would have to wait and teach um, first before before you do that. So I think in, until we have some kind of, these are the, the core components that every teacher needs to know in literacy across the board no matter what teacher prep program you're in. And then they also talked about there are different ways, different avenues that teachers can become certified to teach. Right. And depending on um, that program too, that those programs need to constantly be monitored, revised to make sure that they're high quality, mm-hmm. um, which I agree with too. I've, I've worked with teachers who are well-prepared and teachers who are, I've never seen this before. I've never heard of what you're talking about <laughs> yeah. before um and and i think that's you know that's hard they don't know what they don't know or what they haven't been exposed to like you were saying and there's so much in literacy that you can't teach everything but i think there are some core components um that every program should have mm-hmm. that that teachers need to know about i think it has to do with that teacher having the confidence of knowing that their knowledge has been built to a level that they don't have to just go on to a website or, you know, dig an old series out of a closet that they know their kids are not going to be engaged in just because they don't know what else to do. I think there's a lot to a teacher being able to walk in the door and say, okay, I know how to get started here. I might need help with my next steps, but I know, you know, feeling like you can do that and not being overwhelmed from day one because when you get panicked and you know and scared that's when you start just kind of grasping at whatever you can find well interestingly enough they polled teachers in this in this survey and asked what are some specific needs what are some specific mm-hmm. areas of need and the top 5 needs stated by teachers which i thought was interesting um number 1 using digital resources to support literacy instruction which you talk about a lot that's a passion of yours or yes um digital resources supporting social emotional learning which is a big topic in our school district writing instruction which i could talk about all day long mhm me too um Addressing issues of social justice and teaching vocabulary. <laughs> so it's interesting to me that those are the specific needs. Of course, writing instruction and vocabulary go together. You had mentioned that all of these are kind of umbrellas under um, culturally responsive instruction. Yeah. We talk about the importance of vocabulary a lot and then how the social and emotional learning is weaved into all of those. So I thought that that was interesting. It was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that teachers wanted and needed more autonomy to plan to plan lessons and to use real literature based based off of student talk and beyond a scripted curriculum. Yes. And a lot of the scripted curriculum out there does not really encompass these top five needs of mm-hmm. teachers, which I find interesting too. Um, writing instruction is it's hard to put into a package program. Mm-hmm. I thought that. Um the comment about professional development needing to be differentiated and accommodated through online resources, conference attendance, and school-based professional developers, um, I think that's so critical because how many times have you and I been to something that we were told we needed to attend and it was there were people there who needed exactly what was being presented there were people there who sort of already knew that and then we were there hearing it maybe the third or fourth time it's not very motivating when you don't have your needs as an adult learner met 
through a differentiated professional development approach. So I was glad to see that that was not just something that I've experienced, but that that's a common um, need from teachers. And it's really nice for teachers to have the option to go to something when they when they're ready for it when yeah, they need yeah. it and mm-hmm. they can go back and actually apply it mm-hmm. um, because it's something that they're lacking or it's something that their students need mm-hmm. and they've never had to use before they've never needed that tool and now right. they do right which happens to me all the time with people who say I don't have any ESL students I don't know why I'm hearing this and you know the answer is always don't worry you will you know yeah, right <laughs> you will um, they also the other comment that I highlighted was um, that the specifics of each professional development need to be decided by teachers and their very knowledgeable administrators. There's a lot here about administrators being literacy leaders. And I don't know, I think that's a hard, that's a, that's a tough one because I think most administrators want to be an instructional leader, but their time and their focus is taken in so many different directions. I think it's hard for them to continue developing their instructional knowledge. I think of a lot um, the effective leaders that I know have a team of people around them to mm-hmm. help them, mm-hmm. and they rely on those people who are maybe more knowledgeable in certain subjects because they do have to spend their time running a school building and putting out fires and Mm-hmm. All those other responsi- huge responsibilities that they have on their shoulders. And so I think having that core team around you helps helps with that. Yes. People that you can rely on and mm-hmm. um, that can fill in those blanks maybe for teachers. I thought it was really interesting too that there was an interest in districts per, um, pursuing sustained on-the-ground professional development resources built from within and contextualized. You're smiling. Did you notice that? Yes, I have that highlight. For the district-specific <laughs> needs because we've been in a situation where that was being done and, um, you know, people opted later then for more mass-produced kind of published materials but we know that some of the materials that were developed by people who were working in the schools in our own setting we still use them because they're so relevant you know they're still great resources so it was almost like well if we made it it couldn't be as good as what somebody else made out in a publishing company but this is saying just the opposite so I really was happy to see that what did you think when you saw it um I was excited and I also had a little bit of deja vu Mm -hmm. there um and what stuck out to me, there's a quote at the bottom, to guide learners, you need to be a learner. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like when we buy mass-produced curriculum mm-hmm. and and we we try to learn, that I'm always reminded of the person doing the talking, the person um, with their hands moving is the one that's learning. So for me, if you're in it and you're creating it mm-hmm. and you can share it with someone else, you know it. You actually have it. So, yeah, if you can write your own curriculum, you're well-versed enough to know you have been the learner. Right. So, therefore, you are able to teach it. Mm -hmm. So, I thought that was was interesting. And um, it should not end until one leaves the profession talking about professional learning. Mm -hmm. That we're always learning something. We're always growing. That, um, That hit me, too. And this supporting a cultivating professional learning network. Yeah. So if you're writing and formulating things with one another within your district, you know your kids and teachers better than anyone. Certainly better than any publisher. 
and you're able to modify that to the needs of because every school system is different as well you can have the basic the fundamentals um, that you know every everybody needs in literacy but you're able to adapt that um, to this your your student population and your teacher population so that's what it kind of reminded me of mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised to see that one quarter of teachers said they need support cultivating a professional learning network or PLN. I think because so many people are talking about PLNs on maybe on Twitter, there's so much buzz about it that it feels like everybody has one or they already know how to do it when that's not the case. And a PLN, you know, could be a group of people that you meet with digitally, but it also needs to be people that you can look at and talk to and show your student work to and you know, help you, challenge you to grow, and you can do the same for them. So I don't, I guess I think of a PLN because it's come in with the digital age so much that people talk about the PLN, but um, if you're thinking outside of that, person to person, it is hard to create a professional learning network because teachers are so isolated, you know, and our demands on our time are so intense that it's hard to, it's hard to do that. So I guess it surprised me that that term was used in that way, but it's appropriate. Well, and I think if you have a, if you work on a good team, it's easy to kind of formulate that. But if maybe your team doesn't mesh for whatever reason, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to do that outside of your school. Like you said, yeah. you are kind of isolated, so you have to gravitate yeah. to the people that you are or, actually yeah, with. If you are departmentalized in an elementary setting and you're the, the fifth grade teacher who teaches math, who do you talk to? Right. Um, I think that's really difficult. I think that's also the case for those of us who work with kids with learning differences or like if you're the only teacher who does that or you're the only music teacher, you know, you you feel that very acutely that you don't really have. It's hard to find your professional learning network, but um, there's nothing that's going to make you better and stronger as a teacher than those relationships. And I remember, and I've told the story so many times, but when I was a brand new teacher, the very best thing, even to this day, that a principal ever did for me was she gave me a release day to go and see a teacher in another school who taught the same grade I taught and, you know, let me get out of, you know, that building and go and just see it. And it was so eye-opening for me because I actually then from then on had that person. I had the people at my school too, but she knew this was a phenomenal teacher. So um, it was just a great experience. So I think we need to find more ways for people to actually meet face-to-face, you know, see each other and maybe do that outside of their school. I completely agree. If you're a small district though, that would make it even harder. You know, if there's only one elementary school or two, I always think about us, you know, we work in a big district, but some people just don't have that many people. I guess also our our um, memberships in our ILA and our, you know, state reading association, those can also help you foster those relationships and find your PLN. I want to go back to this idea of balanced literacy for, okay. for a minute if I can. Okay. So they talked about building early literacy skills through a balanced approach that combines both foundational and language comprehension instruction. Mm-hmm. And the term balanced literacy has been a little controversial, I think. Yeah, There's I didn't realize that for, until I didn't just recently. I always thought, oh yeah, balanced literacy, of course. Positive, right. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought of it as, as a positive term. Yeah. Um, but reading things on the internet, sometimes that's not a shared view. Mm-hmm. So balanced literacy to me is really all the components of literacy, the big five, including writing. And it's, it, it is actually a balance of 
all of those components, if one component is missing, then that child is is going to miss something. Right. Um, it's kind of their daily dose of literacy that they need. And mm-hmm. and that's how I see it. Mm-hmm. What do you think of balanced literacy? Yeah, I think of it as different groupings and structures to meet different needs. There's a whole group structure. There's a small group structure. And kids are doing different things. There's also gradual release, which runs through the whole thing. That's what I think of when I think of balanced mm-hmm. literacy. All the parts and pieces are there and kids are getting what they need. So... And if one piece is missing, yeah, then they're going to it's not balanced. be a deficit yeah. of some sort in literacy. So why is that controversial? <laughs> so here's my next question. Okay. So getting into yeah. So I'm going to read you a quote from the the article. Okay. It says, not surprisingly, considering current conversations in the field, respondents are divided over the topic of phonics, mm-hmm. with 24 percent saying building early literacy skills through explicit and systematic phonics instruction currently gets too much attention. And 31% saying it deserves more attention. Mm -hmm. So if you've listened to any of our podcasts or seen our work, Mary and I are definitely components and believers in explicit and systematic phonics instruction because it's part of a balanced literacy. Within the whole, yeah, the balanced literacy model. It's part of a balanced literacy approach. I have seen it hands-on with working with kids and teachers. Mary has seen it. Yes. Work without it, there has been a deficit and we've seen that. Well, I see it often because I work with kids who sometimes don't learn to be literate in English until after the grades where teachers would address the foundational skills and you can tell that their reading fluency can only go so far without having that foundation of being able to decode and understand how words work. It's just, it's a huge detriment if they don't have it. They don't not they they need that no matter how old they are they need it and it can show up in any grade that that problem is there so i wrote in the margin capitals we need both why are we still (laughs) fighting about this (laughs) because i just don't i think well i'm just going to kind of guess here okay I think that there are some programs and probably settings where people are over-focused on phonics without enough application in, you know, text, authentic text. And we've seen those programs. We know what they are. They teach kids how to decode in word call, but they don't necessarily teach them how to transfer, comprehend, and be independent. So if I was using having to use those kind of materials, I'd probably be saying the same thing about phonics. You know, why are we so focused on this? But I mean, I feel like in what I do, there's not enough support with phonics. They, we don't have phonic materials to teach phonics. We don't have, you know, regular training about its use or how to make it. Uh, put it in context so in our in my setting I think you would hear people say uh we need more phonics so I think it just depends maybe on where you are and what what's being provided to you and what you see missing and what your kids are getting what do you think I mean why are we still arguing about it we know phonics is important from the big five because I think what you just said in context I I really think that's that's the difference and Mm -hmm. For me, when I think in context, not just decoding in a book, but spelling and writing and how all of those things kind of work together. Mm -hmm. And is there transfer from an explosive phonics instruction? 
are you seeing it in the writing? Are yeah. you seeing it in the book when they are decoding? Do they see parts of words that they know? What kind? And I think it. What kind of uh, phonics instruction? Yeah, are what they receiving it? makes a difference, right? To you, well, and saying. I'm gonna go out on a limb, and this is just my opinion. Okay, I'm not speaking for Alicia, but <laughs> I think that if we don't pay attention to it, we are handicapping our kids. We're not. I agree. We're not helping them be the readers, the writers. They're not going to be as fluent with those things as they could be. So in that regard, I think we have to give it a place. And I don't think that you can find every phonics skill a student needs by just pulling it out of the text they're reading, okay? And I agree with you about context 100%, but I think that there is a systematic way to teach phonics. Um, It doesn't have to be from workbook page two to page three, but there are different developmental levels of readiness and understanding in phonics. And you've said this too, that, that, that you feel like you understand that better yourself now and that you understand why some phonics you might have done with kids in the past, they weren't ready for it, maybe. Even though it was a feature in the book they were reading, right? Yes. After learning about this um, developmental spelling continuum, Mm -hmm. I... That opened my eyes to say, oh, I was trying to teach them maybe a word family, let's say, Mm. or um, a blender digraph, and they weren't there on the developmental spelling continuum. They were, that was later Mm -hmm. than where they were. Yeah. And so I was teaching them something like, absolutely, they were not ready for. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about one of of the top five um, skills that they, or topics from this survey is determining effective instructional strategies for struggling readers. And as someone who was an interventionist for quite some time I feel like explicit and systematic phonics instruction was something that my struggling readers could have used and I didn't know enough about it Mm -hmm. and the right way that they are that they acquire Mm -hmm. phonics to help them Mm -hmm. and so now I can kind of see that was a barrier Mm -hmm. that some of my students could have actually they could have used that instruction right and it would have helped them in intervention in an intervention setting though i think it's a little bit harder to do the systematic you know i think that what i've learned is that that systematic piece needs to be done with all the kids it's it's that part that we used to call spelling that could that it needs to be learning about the phonics features that you need using it in context Um, doing it in a way that helps you intuit what the patterns are for the features, lots of time to manipulate words, all of that. I think that's easier done in a a larger, you know, setting, yeah, than with an interventionist. So it's kind of probably that's the reason why we didn't know that. But I think maybe not understanding that piece as well as I do now, Mm -hmm. it didn't give me a whole view of of, of my student, maybe why they why they were struggling. Right. That was a piece of that balance that I was missing for yes. them. Um, so I, so it takes me back to that number two, and I think, okay, that would be a def- definite, definite instructional strategy that, that I may look at for that child that struggles. Mm-hmm. You know, do they have that strong phonics instruction in their, in their everyday instruction? I like the comment that says it should be how much and not – and when not whether we teach phonics i mean we got to strike a balance because the arguments and i mean they get heated i don't know if you see them on twitter but they get pretty ugly sometimes 
Um, I also want to throw this in, educators, this is another comment from this section, educators teaching students in higher grades also need support, particularly if their students struggled in their younger years, and in the margin I put and ELLs because there are teachers in upper elementary grades getting newcomers in their classrooms who definitely need phonics instruction and they don't know how to do it because they've maybe always been an intermediate or been there so long that they don't they don't remember what they learned about emergent literacy so and of course we're we are all about the research so I have to say this there's a quote in there we should be looking at what works what's the research base for what works yeah. So actually, is there research behind some of these strategies? Mm-hmm. Not just, we've seen it, it looks good, or, oh, I saw it yeah. you know, on a website. Where the kids like it. It's, <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. They're engaged. But how are they engaged? You know, what and are they doing? Is it effective? Doing? Has, it, mm-hmm. has it been effective multiple times and over uh, multiple settings? I think so the, these top five all kind of weave together. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good segue um, to the section on research, right? Yes. You just mentioned that research is the backbone of effective literacy instruction, and yet, I mean, we hear so little about it. We kind of ignore it, and I don't know why. <laughs> who's we? <laughs> you and I do. Um, but, I mean, who do okay, you think I, it, where do you think that's coming maybe from? Maybe I shouldn't say is we. what I'm asking. I, I think, and I've said this before on, on previous podcasts, it, it still baffles me. I don't understand if we know what to do, mm-hmm. we know what research says works for Mm -hmm. for literacy and for kids um maybe school systems state initiatives we don't include what we know works in these initiatives and i still i don't understand why that is i don't either we have we have the foundation you know we we know enough (laughs) we know enough about what to do now we need to know how to keep start doing it and keep doing it. I guess it's the translation of the research into practice that's that's where it's falling apart. And and there were some things in here about making sure schools build capacity for literacy leaders and and I just think it's important if you're going to have literacy leaders in your district in your building, then I think it's important to listen to what they have to say and and what they recommend. Mm-hmm. There's no quick fix. And I, I think oftentimes we look for those quick fixes if test scores are low, if schools are struggling. Maybe that's why we tend to ignore the research. It's I think best practices are sometimes harder yeah. to implement because you have to have some knowledge behind yeah, it. Yeah, and you have to have a it, long view, right? And yeah. you also have to have consistent leadership, you know, and teachers – consistently staying in the same places you know teacher it's not turning over and changing because they're frustrated with not being able to get to their kids the way they need to and I think initiatives can't change every couple of years either yeah it it takes years to (laughs) build a foundation right and we tend to as schools as a society change with what's hot Right. Um, And we can't expect, especially with foundational skills, you can't expect an initiative that's addressing foundational skills to change fourth or fifth grade student performance on a standardized test in a year or two. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. You have to give foundation, foundational skills time to get to, you know, they have to grow with the kids and you have to have the long view of measuring that too so and I think that's why I I got so excited when I read that 
the the top five mm-hmm. things that educators wanted and that we saw that we needed were the things that we have been taught. They they stay in the test of time for a reason. Yes. And they keep coming back around right. for a reason mm-hmm. because it's what it's what readers and writers need. Right. Um and it's it's beyond their education. They they need it for life. So they uh said a challenge is how to keep current on the latest research for teachers, right? And that they're turning to academic experts, professional associations, um, but they need more support. I'm not sure that I see a lot of people looking at the professional associations or academic experts. I don't know. I think that's kind of even to assume that that's happening or that, you know, a lot of people have that is not not necessarily the case. And then I thought of you on this part, Alicia, many look online, but few of you have that highlighted. I know you do. Few of the popular destina- destinations, personal blogs, Pinterest boards, and Instagram accounts, among others, are research-informed. I like Pinterest just like everyone else. <laughs> oh, However, me too. I'm me too. picky. Pinterest I am picky about. Um, and I and I work with and I do encourage the teachers I work with to be picky mm-hmm. because just like everything else on the web, you don't know what's reputable or not. Right. And it. And like I said, we have the science. We just, we need to use the science. We right. need to use it. Yes. There are researchers out there that have done the work for us. Mm-hmm. Time and time again, they're telling us this is what um, kids need in literacy. And we just don't do it. We don't do it. And I was, we just ignore it. I was thinking, too, that, you know, our goal, we have Merton and Morgan Consulting. And we have a Pinterest board. And we have a blog. And we have... An Instagram account and they're all research-based that was our whole goal was to be a research-based version of what we see teachers turning to so then to see that in writing that that's what people want it was just like so well we shouldn't be surprised because we're just responding to a need yeah we're we're just we're responding to a need so um, but we don't hear about this that much from other people around us so to see it there was great and i love the idea of article clubs did you see that yes i think we should do that we could do that online you know to have people read an article and they get together and um, discuss it you can do it online you could do it with voice thread you could do it all kinds of you know fun ways or face to face in a coffee shop or i don't know an article's a bite you know it's a it's a deep it could be a deeply stimulating academic research but it's not long so people could i think people could handle it's kind of what we're doing right now article it is what we're doing right now huh how about that i really like that idea so if you would like to read the full report it is in the international literacy association journal ila it's in the january february 2020 issue it's called what's hot in literacy 2020 and we hope to hear from you drop us a line on Mm -hmm. facebook or instagram or our website tell us what you think is hot or what should be hot yeah 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 see you next time see you next time